My name is Rob, and I'm one of the pastors here. Can you guys hear me okay? There we go. Thanks, Nige. So, we live... Oh, don't worry about it. We live in a day and age, have you guys noticed this? Where, and children, if you're here, how many of you kids like Marvel movies? Marvel. Marvel. Yeah, is that better? <laughs> Did you not understand what it is? Marvel. <laughs> yeah, Mary Marvel. Okay, now do you understand what I'm saying? What are you... What are you? I won't. I won't try to. So, at a show of hands, kids or adults, yeah, we tend to love the idea of um, heroes, right? Does this this mic sounds funky? Does that sound okay? Do you want me to take it off? No, no, no. My gosh. Dan, help me. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so we tend to like heroes, right? We, we tend to, it's the, it's the idea of someone that is a, uh, a figure that is either real life or someone that is, is not, is a fictional person hero, right? Someone that saves the day, someone that acts courageous, someone that takes risks. And typically the hero saves the day, right? When you read different stories of people in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, um, they're often far from being a hero. I think the book of Jonah is a good example of that. In the book of Jonah, you've got a guy who's who's called by God to go to a specific city. And we looked at last week, he does the exact opposite. He, he runs, he flees, he goes a completely different direction, and he'd rather die than obey God. Do you realize that for a second? He'd rather die, throw me overboard, he says to the sailors. He'd actually rather die than obey God. And so what happens? He gets swallowed up by a massive fish and then when he is spat out and goes and people in droves are saved at his message. What does he do? Does he celebrate and decide to go all around the Middle East after that preaching the good news? No, he throws a fit about it. I'd rather die than live. Far from being a hero, would you agree? Very far from it. So when we look at a book like Jonah, the question we should ask ourselves then, so then why is this here? Who is the hero in this story? And as I shared last week, Jonah is, is more than a story or a cute children's story, of a, or it's more than a story about a prophet who ran away from God. It's the story of the grace of God that pursues Jonah in his stubborn rebellion. And you know, friend, there's a little Jonah in every single one of us in that we were all trying to run away from God, and yet God, we're not actually seeking God, we're seeking our own delights, desires, and things that make us happy. 
And oftentimes we reject the ways of God and God pursues us. We're often fugitives from God. And the book of Jonah is a wonderful display of the true hero who's God himself. And his grace is written on the pages of this book from beginning to end. So what I want to do today, as we look at the book of Jonah and in the second chapter, it's interesting because if you read the book of Jonah, it starts off, it's, it could be something in a movie. Like I said, Moby Dick referenced this in his or not, Moby Dick didn't write it, but um, it's in the book of Moby Dick, right? Um, it, it's, a, it's a book that you could make this into a movie, but you, you get chapter one, and it's really exciting. This guy's running away, gets thrown into the sea, sea goes calm, and then all of a sudden he becomes Shakespeare. Like in chapter two, it becomes all of this poetry all this poetic sort of language. It, it, maybe you've read through the book of Jonah before, and as you're reading through it, you get to chapter two, and you're kind of like, wow, wow. Anyway, keep going. And into the heart of the seas, belly of Sheol. Don't know what that means. Keep going. Ah, chapter three. Oh, now he's in Nineveh. And then you get sort of, we have sort of a picture of chapter two that can be kind of confusing, to be honest. So what I want to do this morning is actually look at, at chapter 2, kind of break it down for you, and so we can hopefully understand it in light of the book itself and sort of see how chapter 2 is broken down. And then what I want to do is actually talk about, is this a reliable book? What kind of book is this? Is this true history writing? Is this just a fable? Is this just sort of an allegory that's kind of representing something larger? Did Jonah really exist? Because I had a girl, when I was a youth pastor, I actually had a girl in my youth group say, the main reason I don't want to become a Christian is because I cannot buy this ridiculous fairy tale stuff about some bloke being swallowed by a whale. Like, that's, what is this, Pinocchio or something? I just don't think that's rational. It's weird. I mean, it makes a cute story for a flannel graph for children, but I don't buy it. And so can we buy, can we actually buy into this? Is this something that's true and, and real? Did this actually happen? And what I want to look at is two objections that people will say, nah, Book of Jonah is not true. And we can show how those objections don't really hold much water, pun intended, okay? And then last, I want to look at, so that all sounds fine. Yeah, wait, we talked about the structure. Mm, mm, sounds kind of boring. And then we looked at two objections. I don't, I believe Jonah's true, so I'm not really, I'm not sweating it. But then lastly, I want to look practically because what you see, like I said, written throughout this book is you see the grace of God. God is the hero. And so how does God respond when his children cry out to him in distress? And we'll look at five ways of that. So first part, structure. Second part, we're going to get in an argument with the people that try to write this book off. Because they don't have good reason to do it, but we'll, you, you be the judge of that. And then lastly, lastly, we'll look at five ways practically that God responds to his children when they cry out to him in distress. So that said, let's look to the Lord in prayer and then we'll read this passage in Jonah. Father, as we come here this morning, 
Lord, and as this tends to be a time of the year where many of us are still on holiday, which is a great thing, and we thank you for this, this time. We pray that our hearts would not be on holiday at the moment, that our hearts would be engaged, that our, we'd be teachable and moldable. Spirit, we pray that you would convict us of areas that we have rebelled against you, like Jonah, that we fled from clear direction that you've given to us. Lord, that we pray that we would embrace you, Lord Jesus, by faith, and we would be able to really not just hear this message, but really embrace your grace because of we're getting a better understanding of who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Jonah, if you are following along and you have a Bible there, hey, look, if you don't have a Bible, we've got them there in the foyer. And it's important that you bring your Bible or at least that you track along because I don't want you just thinking that all this stuff is legit just because myself or Dan are saying it. I want you seeing it with your own eyes. So in Jonah chapter 2, let's read the whole chapter and then we'll sort of unpack this. uh, There's like two bits to it here. So it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called, uh, sorry, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And this is the word of the Lord. So, notice in verses 1 through 7, if you're just following along, that notice that Jonah prayed and reflected on his experience of being cast overboard into the sea. You see that there? 1 through 7 is is past tense, as it were. Because in this prayer, he stresses about his plight and and God's willingness to answer his cry for help. But then, in verses 8 through 9, if you have a, a Bible, it's your Bible and you want to mark it up, you can even draw a little line there or two brackets if it's helpful because 8 through 9, it's a little, there's a shift. If you can see it, he offers praise to God for saving him from his dreadful plight, really. It's in the present tense, what's currently happening. Now, I don't know why, but for some reason, this fish seems to get all of the spotlight in this book only mentioned twice. People often say, Jonah's the story about that fish. And if we're not careful, we can lose sight 
of the great God focused on the great fish. Do you know what I mean? So look carefully at the language he uses here. It's interesting, he says, notice in verse 2, out of the belly, you see it there? I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Well, hold on a second. Kids, where is he again? Where is he praying this from? Inside the belly of a fish, but he's here he's saying out of the belly of Sheol. Well, hold on a second. You see that there? Notice. What does that mean? Out of the belly of Sheol. Well, Sheol was the shadowy place of the dead where the wicked in the Old Testament went to their final judgment. So this phrase does not mean Jonah actually died, but that he had a near-death experience. For instance, Sheol is referenced by David when he thought he was going to die. Psalm 18.5, listen to this verse. The cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. When April was pregnant with our firstborn, she would often call me, and she was feeling very nauseous, and she would say, I'm dying. Now, she wasn't literally dying. Some of you women are like, you jerk. Yes, <laughs> yes, she was. And when you get off that stage, I'm going to give you my own sermon. Okay? She wasn't literally dying. That was a figure of speech, right? And so this belly of Sheol is written in a poetic manner. Now, I say all of that because... There are some people, even some people who call themselves Christians, who try to dismiss the trustworthiness of this book. They'll say things like, I just can't buy it. I just don't believe that this actually happened. I know it's there in the Bible. I just think maybe there's something more going on that meets the eye. And so, what they'll do is they'll often say, I and they might read this in an article or on the internet or whatever, and they'll say, I don't think this is actually a historical book. I think it's more of a Jewish fable. So let's, pack on, let's, let's park the car there for a second. Jewish fable. So they'll say, I think the truths in it are still true. I just don't think the events of it are actually true. Does that make sense? It's just a Jewish fable. In fact, liberal scholars get hung up on certain details in this, specifically in this prayer. And so they'll draw these conclusions. I mean, look, look, look what I'm saying here. Look at verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of shield I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I again look upon your holy temple. Notice here, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. Well, certain people will look at this and say, now we know that that can't be true because this has to be a myth we know that waves of the ocean don't flow back and forth inside whales' stomachs. And 
whales' bellies do not contain seaweed. So this has to just be a parable of some kind or some kind of Jewish fable. Now the problem with this theory is that it is draws really from the assumption that the whale is an instrument of punishment for Jonah. And we talked about that last week, that actually the whale is not a punishment. Furthermore, it assumes that in his desperation, Jonah is crying out to God to rescue him from the incarceration of the whale. In other words, these assumptions are invalid, listen, because they're based off the idea that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Guess what? Jonah wasn't swallowed by a whale. Is that okay if I say that? Jonah was not swallowed by a whale. Oh, so you don't believe this is true. It doesn't say Jonah was swallowed by a whale. It says he was swallowed by a great fish. Right? Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It simply says that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, or if you have a King James version, a sea monster. (laughs) It's kind of cool. I think naturally people jump to the conclusion, right, that fair enough that this has to be false because he wouldn't have been swelled by a dolphin or swallowed by a dolphin. <laughs> we think great fish and we think whale. The important principle here is that we cannot pass over is that God himself was the provider of this creature. You see, uh, depending on what your translation says, it might say, and God appointed, ordained, prepared. See, the Lord could have created a, a unique, special act of creation for this very moment. Also, as I just mentioned, the argument assumes that the whale or fish is sent to punish Jonah. But again, even a cursory reading of that will say that it's not. This is a sign of God's grace to save him from drowning. I mean, look, look, look at verse 3 again. Look at verse 3. And ask yourself, is, is this a man inside a fish? For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. You see that there? Or, or is this a man inside a fish, or is this a man who's about to die in the sea? In this text, Jonah is alive. He's on this planet, and he's not in Sheol. So obviously, he, he's using the term belly of Sheol in a figurative sense. And the sea is Jonah's belly of hell, as it were. So that's what people will say is that I don't buy that this is real. But here's another reason people will say it. They'll say, that is scientifically impossible for someone to be swallowed by a fish. Because maybe you can convince them and show them in the Bible that actually it doesn't say whale. You ever notice people have caricatures of Christianity, caricatures of the Bible, but usually they've never been to church and they've never actually read the Bible? Right? Like, oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't go there. Well, what, what? As people say, I, I invite people here on the coast. I'll be in Air and Affair or wherever, you know, on earth, here on the coast. And I'll say, oh, man, we'd love to have you come. Oh, yeah, no. I, I'm not going to come. Why? Because, uh, uh, yeah, I just, you, you guys are going to make me do, uh, we're going to make you do what? You know, it's just they have a caricature of Christianity. They have, they have an assumption that Christianity is false. But usually, I even, I talked with a gal this week. And she said, um, I'm an atheist. And I said, are you an atheist or are you an agnostic? Because usually I don't hear someone that's so dogmatic to say that they're an atheist. An atheist says there's no God. 
And I said, if there's, that's fine. But an, an agnostic would say that maybe there's a God, he's just not knowable. Gnosko, Greek, knowing, alpha prefix, you can't know if there is a possible God. Which one are you? And if you are an atheist, how do you get your ethics? She said, well, I just want people to not mess around with each other. Yeah, how's that going in Iran at the moment? I mean, come on. Like, and how about the World War II, World War I? Look at history. Like, people are sinful. And so, like, we can't... And by the way, if, if that's true, should we all just abide by your ethic? or someone else's ethic, and who decides what's right and what's wrong? See, people have caricatures of Christianity. They'll say, it's false. But I just want to push there and say, why is it false? Why is it false? So if the book of Jonah is false, if it's, scientific, if it's a Jewish fable, why is it a Jewish fable? Well, because seaweed doesn't, well, it doesn't say, because whales don't swallow people. It doesn't say a whale. So, you see how important this is? We have to have, we, God has given us brains and we want to use them for his glory and think and study and pray and be winsome with people because I, I promise you, those of you that have family members that aren't Christians, they would look at this book and say, that's just insane. But just push and say, why is it insane? Why is it insane? Now, some people will say this. It is scientifically impossible that this would happen. So that's, they'll say either it's a Jewish fable, there's one argument, other times they'll say it's scientifically impossible. Did Jonah really live inside the belly of a fish? Fine, if you're willing to say, let's just look at the Bible, it's a fish, but I don't think so. Well, again, if you write off miracles in the Old Testament, you're forced to answer no. Does that make sense? If you say miracles are impossible, that doesn't happen, either in any time, in any space, well then, you're already coming with a prejudice to the text. Does that make sense? And you're saying, I, 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 I dismiss it. And so, because I dismiss it, it's scientifically impossible. It does, it, it's not rational. Because there are people who assert that if a man were inside the belly of a fish three days, that the juices that are secreted in the stomach cap, uh, cavity of that fish would kill him. Okay, fair enough. Others would conclude that Jonah couldn't have lived in a fish, so the book needs to be viewed sort of like an allegory, right? Jonah is like the nation of Israel. And the fish is Babylon that swallows up the nation of Israel in captivity. So that's really what he's talking about. Other people would say that Jonah and the sailors actually made it, no joke, this is one argument, Jonah and the soldier, soldiers, jo Jonah and the sailors made it back to dry land and Jonah spent three days and three nights recovering from this storm in a motel called The Fish. <laughs> so that's, this must be, I'm not kidding. That's, it's, yeah. Now you laugh at this, but again, if you write off the miracles of the Old Testament, if you have a prejudice going into the text that that can't happen, then you're forced to come to some of these conclusions. Does that make sense? Now, now if you believe the truthfulness of the Bible, if you accept these claims to be true, then you can be in line with Jesus. You're like, oh, hold on. I'm cool with Jesus. It's just this Jonah stuff. Well, look, if you say this is a load of rubbish, you're actually not tr trusting the judgment of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean by that. Go, go to the New Testament real quick. Go to Matthew 12. So Matthew 12, 
it's fascinating. Look at how, so Jesus, he's, uh, it's on page 817 of your church Bible. The Pharisees, they're, they're arguing with Jesus. They want to see another miracle. And Jesus points to one that happened many years ago. Look at Matthew 12 and verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, look what he says, an evil and adulterous generation, meaning they're unfaithful to God, an unfaithful generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet who? Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was crucified on Friday and his resurrection happened on Sunday. Friday is considered day one and Sunday is day three, so it doesn't have to be a full 24-hour period to represent a whole day. But here's the point. Jesus parallels Jonah's time in the fish, three days, three nights, as an illustration of the literal three days and three nights that he would spend in the grave himself. In other words, Jesus points to the fact that just as Jonah's preaching was validated by the miracle of the fish, so Jesus' mission will be validated by his resurrection. Those of us who respect the wisdom of Jesus and the words of Jesus probably shouldn't call his words maybe into judgment. Uh, Now, some of you might say, okay, fair enough, but... How can a man survive in the belly of a fish? It still doesn't make sense. Well, you're right, he can't. You're right. Any more than a person can stay three days in the grave and be raised back to life again. It's a miracle. Jesus knew this was no ordinary event. It was a miraculous, it was miraculous. So really, there's no sense in trying to explain it scientifically, any more than when Moses parted the Red Sea. How you can't part a Red Sea? Well, I know it must have been a very low tide. And that's how the Egyptians drown in knee-deep of water. You can't explain that. So you're coming with the Bible. You're coming to the Bible to submit under its authority and trust the words that are there. Not naively, but to trust them. Notice what Jesus says again. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's interesting, in this text, Jesus refers to Jonah as a type of himself. Do you see that there? Jonah was entombed in the belly of the fish. Jesus was entombed in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah was delivered from his watery grave, so Jesus Christ emerged victoriously from the grave. Jonah was a preacher of repentance to Nineveh. Someone greater than Jonah, Jesus, had come preaching repentance as well. Jonah's miracle and preaching were a sign to the Ninevites, and Jesus and his preaching were a sign to the current generation. That's the point.
Look at verse 41. See that? The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, I love that, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is a greater prophet than Jonah because he fulfilled all that Jonah and his mission foreshadowed and was now being revealed. Basically, Jesus saw the book of Jonah as anticipating his own ministry and message. When Jonah's struggling in the water, for instance, think back to chapter 2. When Jonah's struggling in the water, what does he say? I was driven away from your sight. Do you remember that? I was driven away from your sight. And there's no doubt that as Jonah senses death creeping upon him, he feels the weight of God's abandonment. Right? But this only foreshadows or points forward to another who entered into a state of forsakenness beyond anything any human has ever experienced, that being total abandonment from God. You see, Jonah is in this mess, seaweed wrapped around his head, he's sinking to the bottom of the ocean for his own sin, you see. Jesus, on the other hand, accepted the abandonment and wrath of God not for his own sin, but for ours. Church, we need to grasp the reality. God is a holy God, and the only way you and I could ever be reconciled to a holy God is through the death of God's own Son when he hung on the cross. Because when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, he died in the place of sinners. People have said, wow, well that shows you how much man is worth then. That's not true. The cross is a sign of how depraved we really are that it took the death of God's own son. You might say, well, I, I like that. I, I, I've, I've heard this message before. I, I like this idea of Jesus paying for my sin. That sounds pretty good. Yes, it is, but just by hearing that, just by hearing that and agreeing with it intellectually still leaves you with the dilemma of pushing your face to a window. You're still on the outside looking in because you can tick the box mentally, but you're, you're, like, you're like someone not inside a shopping mall or, or in a store. You're just pressing your face against it. The way that you enter in is by faith. The way that you grab hold of this truth, friend, is by faith alone. To lay hold of Jesus, trusting in him. It's acting upon what you believe to be true. In faith. Then Romans 8.1 can be true. The promise you can cling to, it says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you lay hold of that not by just ticking a box. You lay hold of that by faith, acting upon what you believe to be true, embracing Jesus Christ alone for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about this idea, because like I said last week, what can we expect when we say no to God, right? And I said, expect a storm. I don't remember what my other points were. 
must, be, must have been pretty good. I expect a fish or, you know, whatever. But what can we expect though? Because here's, I, I, le- I don't want to just leave you with that. I'm, I'm pressing that on you to act in faith. How can God answer his children when they call to him in distress? Because like Jonah, we disobey the Lord. Like Jonah, we run. And we know, it's not, it's not like, oh, I didn't know. Oh, I, I, I said, yeah, come on, we know. We know when we sin. But how do we, what should we do? How should we call to him in distress? So how does God answer his children? Well, number one, in spite of their guilt. In spite of our guilt. Jonah is guilty, but he acknowledges that to God. And this principle is not just an isolated one. Listen to this passage in Psalm 107. God did the same thing for the nation of Israel. Some sat in darkness and in shadow shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Now listen, like Jonah, so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, like Jonah, right? And he delivered them from their distress. So in spite of our guilt, the goal of your guilt is to drive you to something. It's not to wallow in your guilt, but it's to drive you to repentance, to crying out to the Lord. Look at Jonah. Go back to Jonah with me. Go back to Jonah chapter 2, verse 3. Jonah 2, 3 says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Wait a minute. Look carefully at the language there. And kids, who threw Jonah overboard? Do you you kids remember? Who threw Jonah overboard? Yes, Samantha. But you know what God says? Or you know what Jonah says? Jonah says, you threw me overboard. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Do you know why? Because Jonah understands who is in power, who's in control. Yes, the men threw Jonah overboard, but God was the one in control of all of that. God was the one who did it. Because you see what it says? Didn't Didn't the mariners throw you overboard? They did, but Jonah acknowledges God's hand of providence. As Jonah went flying over the side of the boat thinking, I'm done for, it's over. It was God that threw him off the ship, not to destroy him, but so that he could continue to save him, use him, you see. Because it was impossible to make use of him when he was buried silent underneath, right? It'd be tempting, though, if you're Jonah to be like, you know, I like sleeping. I like, you know, I don't, I don't want to serve God. I actually, I'd rather die. And that, that's, that's his, his, his whole MO, isn't it? But God pursues him, and even in the ocean. Throws him, right, after he's been thrown overboard, and says, Jonah, we got to talk. And as soon as he has his attention, gets him in a position where he's ready to talk, He cries out to the Lord in spite of his judgment. In spite of his judgment. That's the second thing. How how does God answer 
his children in distress, not only in spite of their guilt, but write this down if you'd like. The second thing is in spite of his judgment. When God is displeased with us, he never brings us into affliction just for the sake of punishment. His purpose is to bring redemption. Job knew this though, right? In Job 36, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Listen, adversity is redemptive, not merely retributive or punitive. In other words, Jonah prayed for deliverance to the very God who threw him overboard. And the God who threw him over the board was the one who heard his prayer and saved him. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I look again upon your holy temple. You see that there? Noticed, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the land whose bars closed in upon me forever. You see, that's a, that's a picture. That's a real product picture of someone drowning. That's what's going on there. Now, this experience must have been scary. I don't know if you've ever tried swimming when there's a big swell and when there's a big current and it's sucking you out and you're starting to feel like panicked. Imagine it's the middle of the night, though, in the wintertime when there's big swells. Someone throws you overboard. You don't know which way's up, which way's down. And as you're sinking to the bottom, gasping for air, and you're trying to then you finally realize, hey, I, there's up, I think. And as you're starting to make your way up to the surface, you hit a massive ball of seaweed and it make, becomes like a straitjacket for you. You're thinking, like, that's a really fearful thing. But you know what's scarier? What, that's actually not Jonah's greatest fear. Do you know that? Though that is scary, that is scary, it's, a, it's actually not the physical thing that scares him the most. He says, I am driven away from your sight. I'm not in communion with God. The sea is scary, but now I have to face the God who created the sea. And it's impossible for me to hide or make myself right in his sight. That's why Jesus said that it is impossible not to be banished from his sight unless you're clothed in his righteousness. It's a scary thought to think about dying, isn't it? Let's be honest. I, I don't want to go out in a bunch of pain. But it's a scarier thought to meet God not clothed in righteousness, not prepared for heaven. Because there's nowhere to hide from his eye. There's nowhere to hide from his judgment. There's no excuse that you will have. That's a much scarier thought than drowning. Being, it's being banished. But you don't have to be, friend, because Jesus was banished, as it were, on Calv at the cross. So how does, in spite of our guilt, yes, in spite of all that, but number three, how does God answer his children in their distress in impossible circumstances? That's why Jesus says, Right? With man, it is impossible. Now with God, all things are possible. Salvation, that is. Not that you can fly or be a millionaire. That's not what he's talking about. Salvation can be possible. As he's treading water, Jonah, and losing strength, his initial thought is that 
He has now been completely rejected by God. But as I already stated, this finds its ultimate fulfillment in the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. But for now, it seems that everything in his circumstance worsens and he is sinking deeper and deeper. And then the Lord intervenes in verse 6. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed in upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice he's saying that when my, when my life was fainting away, in this struggle, Jonah began to lose his breath, He's taking in water. He's probably losing consciousness. And his thoughts turn to God. So how else does God answer his children in their distress? Just in the nick of time. Just in the nick of time. God often answers our prayers at the 11th hour. But when Jonah thought he had been abandoned by God, he's swallowed by the fish. By the way, not a great place to live in a fish but a wonderful place to learn and repent. And I don't know where you're at, friend, but maybe, metaphorically speaking, you're in a fish. It's a great place to learn. It's a great place to turn. Those who pay... It's interesting. You notice his language here? Those who pay regard to vain idols. Jonah is essentially saying that those who worship idols will discover in times of trouble how powerless they really are to save them. Look, any person on this world is going to disappoint you. Every person in this world is, is going to be sinful, and you're going to be sinful too. You might not even realize it, but you made an idol of, of your partner or whatever it might have been. And, and look, you're, at the end of the day, your partner is not only going to disappoint, but your partner can't save you from God. But that's why Jonah's saying those who cling to these idols forsake Steadfast love that could be theirs, but contrast, those who worship the Lord will always find him trustworthy and reliable. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That really could be the banner over this whole book. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. You know, it's interesting. Other nations that he comes to this conclusion, hey, look, Jonah is a total jerk, a racist ethnocentric jerk. He's not a good guy. By the way, I know you like your Disney movies. He's not going to end well. <laughs> the book's interesting, the book of Jonah. Notice, like, if, if you've read it, the Ninevites turn. We're going to look at that next week. Jonah throws a conniption fit about it. And then God has the last word and says, should I not be compassionate about this city? And then the book just ends. Like, what happened to Jonah? Did God say, if if you say you're going to want to die one more time, your wish is my command. Boom, you know? I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Because the point's not about Jonah, is it? It's about God and his graciousness. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Can you say that, friend? Can you own that for yourself? Some of you grew up in church, and maybe you can say that about your parents. But can you say that? yourself. Is that the banner over your life that salvation belongs to the Lord? 
It's interesting. Other nations, though, would have responded differently. Some might have set up a fish idol. It's interesting. The the Philistines had an idol in the shape of a fish called Dagon. Quite interesting. Jonah understands that this fish is not his savior. He's only the means by which God himself intervenes to rescue Jonah. And Jonah says that every Christian should say salvation belongs to the Lord. So how does God answer, lastly, his children in distress? In order to cause us to praise him. To praise him. Jonah did not save himself. He was totally powerless to do so. The only possible way he could be saved was by divine intervention, by God reaching down and saving him. And just like all of us. Look what 1 Peter 2, 9 says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason, look, can I just ask you a question? Does your neighbor on your left or your right know Jesus that in your neighborhood? Does your, does your, I'm not talking literally in the church right now. I mean like in your, like in your neighbor, not now. I, well, you never know. Does your neighbor, I don't, Wyoming, Narara, you know, wherever you lived, Lizaro, does the person on your left know Jesus? Or does the person on your right know Jesus? And some of you might, and here's what's interesting, I've asked a lot of you, and, and this is the response I've got. I don't know. What? If you're saved, what, are you spo- what does Peter say? We may proclaim the excellencies. You want to share that with your neighbors, with the people around you. Proclaim the excellencies. If, have you asked your neighbor? I'm not saying, oh, are you a Christian? Or not? Just, you can gauge pretty quickly. My neighbor on my left could care less. My neighbor on my right could care less. Hindus across the street. I know where my neighbors are at. I'm engaging with them. Why? Because God, not because, by the way, if you think, oh, because you're the pastor and you're a great person, what a joke. Come hang out with me for a week. Come live in my living room. Believe me. No, because I may proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. I have to tell people about the gospel because I've been saved by this message. And if you are a Christian, a genuine Christian, I don't care if you think you're one, if you're a genuine Christian, you'll do the same. If you're a genuine Christian, really saved by God, you will do the same. I know maybe your dad told you you're a Christian, your mom was. If you're a genuine Christian, it's overflowing. You can't get enough of the gospel. Because the good news of salvation, salvation belongs to the Lord. You want to know how this church is going to grow? Okay? Oh, uh, we need, church needs to grow. You know how it needs to grow? We need to really bathe in the gospel and take it so seriously to where we're changed from the inside out daily, looking, clinging to God, being grateful for Jesus. And it, that becomes infectious and we want to hear other people to hear about it. It's not by getting a young pastor, you know, with that wears shorts here on Sunday, like the other old two guys that they had or whatever. I mean, they're, Peter's not that old. But that's, I, do you understand that, right? It's like, I, I can't like do hocus pocus and come out here on a pogo stick and make this church grow. It'd be weird if I did anyways. Or maybe you get a fog machine, right? 
Or maybe I, I tone down the message and make it really palatable for people. Just take out sin and this idea, like, you know, it's too negative. None of that is going to grow a church in a genuine way that needs to be grown. It's going to be the gospel. It's going to be faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone to the glory of God alone. Period. That's what I want to see in 2020. My wife says, there are so many things in your notes that you just go off on rants, so she's not here. Honey, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> anyway, let's close up with this. It's interesting when you think about Jonah. He, let's look at the last verse. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What's interesting there is you almost picture, and I'm, this is a bit of conjecture, but do you almost picture children seeing Jonah on the beach, pulling, you know, wiping off the fish guts, etc., and they go, who's that down there? Who's that down there? So Samantha, who's on the beach? Jonah, right? You got vomited out. Who is that down there? They go, Jonah, what are you doing? We heard you just tuck-tailed and run out of here. Ran out of here. You, you left. Yeah, I did, but um, you're never going to believe this. I, I, there's a big storm that happened. Yeah, we, we, we experienced that storm as well here, but I, was, I heard it was terrible on the beach. People, people in the ocean died. And da, 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 and, well, I actually got thrown off the ship. What? How did you survive? You're a good swimmer. No, I got... Um, I've been living in a fish the last three days. <laughs> it's like, right, children, come, you know, it's a, stay away from the crazy man. It's a crazy idea, it's a crazy thought, isn't it? Just as crazy as that we can say we're changed today from someone that died 2,000 years ago that was a carpenter who claimed to be the son of God. That's, that's ludicrous if you think about it. But it's the same thing, isn't it? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's the message that we have, that Jesus Christ, who's the greater Jonah, who never disobeyed, lived perfectly in our place, we can have life in him, forgiveness in his name. I'm excited next week because we're going to talk about repentance. And we're going to see the, the, how the Ninevites respond and it's fascinating. But let's pray now. And Lord, as we close, we stand in agreement with the truth of your word that was penned by your brother Jude when he said, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and you're joining,